Hello and welcome to the Cranog Cast. Um, we're sat in the museum today with Jason. Say hello, Jason. Hello, Rich. There we go. And what we're going to do today is we're going to do a little bit like what we did with the textile, where we're going to take a piece of the collection and we're going to go through what it can tell us, the, the, the archaeology behind it and a bit of the work that's been done. And what we're going to focus on today um, is the crucible fragment from Oak Bank Cranog. So our Cranog site excavations took place starting from 1980 onwards underwater archaeology phenomenal preservation that was at the site so we we're able to understand a lot about the people and huge amounts of preservation um, in terms of different artifacts but one of the things we found um, with mostly intact the base I would say is the is a crucible fragment um, so Jason has been doing some experimental archaeology around this using the ceramics um, that he has fired from the clay, from the local geology that would have been nearby the Oak Bank Cranock site. So we're just going to talk a little bit about that. Um, so Jason, if you just want to introduce yourself again quickly and introduce the, the bit uh, that we're talking about today. Yeah, sure. So my name's Jason. Um, I have many roles at the Scottish Cranock Centre. Um, but what I most enjoy is using experimental archaeology um, where we reconstruct things from the past to better inform the storytelling in the present. Um, and uh, I have made a reconstruction of a, as close as possible, to the original fragment that we have in the museum. Um, the clay, I suppose rather naively, when I went out into the landscape, I thought I would dig down into the ground and I may hit a layer of iron which would be in a straight line. And then I thought underneath that I would hit a layer of clay which I'll be able to just be able to take out and fashion. This would all be in a straight line and very neat. But this is the value of experimental archaeology and going out into the landscape and doing these things. Is that I found a variety of different kinds of clay, probably within about 10 metres of each other. And the process was, was to dig up the clay, was to process it, and to try and reconstruct the shape of the original fragment that we've got here. And the clay, Jason, that's... From the village of Fernan. Yeah. And Fernan is in the bay of Fernan, is yeah. where Oakbank Crown is located. So, in terms of distance, this is the closest yeah. raw material yeah. that would have been available to these people. Yeah. yeah. That's, That's right. Um, so, we mixed, when, when we look at the, uh, the crucible fragment that we have got in our collection and we look at it close up, we can see there are, it's like a, maybe it looks like a yellow powder, there's mm -hmm. a yellow inclusion. And there is also quartz inclusions. And that wouldn't have made any sense at all um, before um, we actually started reconstructing the, the fragment. When I dug down into the, uh, into the ground, so it went down about 750 millimetres, something like that, um, I found some bright yellow clay. And um, this was actually used to, to make the crucible. I mixed it up with some quartz. Um, we have an idea that maybe the quartz uh, pieces in our fragment are about two millimetres wide, so I didn't grind the quartz down to anything less than that. And it was mixed in with the clay, and we took maybe 20 measurements from the, from the crucible fragment, and we, we replicated those on our, on our replica, on our reconstruction. And I didn't think it was going to work, because the clay was very, very difficult to, um, to fashion. It kept falling apart. And then I thought to myself, I can't think like a modern potter because I've been speaking to modern potters about this. You have to work with the material you've got. Yeah. Um, so eventually he fashioned it 
and um, we were doing some bronze casting and I put it near the furnace to dry. It dried within about half an hour mm -hmm. and within four hours we had a crucible that had been fired probably up to about a thousand degrees centigrade and, and it didn't crack. That's just by moving it closer and closer. We didn't even that do that. Fire. We just yeah. left it near it about a foot away. Oh, we were bronze casting. Bronze casting and then at the end another one of my colleagues just put it in the furnace and thought what's going to happen? And there we are, and it, is, and it survived. So the next step will be, can we actually melt down tin and bronze, just, uh, tin and copper to make bronze? Just to add to that, Jason, you say it survived, but actually we're looking at the piece now in front of us, and yeah. it's better than survived. There's no, there's no cracks in it, there's no. nothing. So usually when we're firing clay, you know, the, the chance of survival yeah. <laughs> can be quite slim, just because mm. as you dry it, it dries the moisture from the clay, the moisture will then, obviously, it has to mm. work its way out of the material. And if that happens too quickly, you get fragments and it breaks mm. and it cracks. And this is one of the things that, you know, without a really controlled environment mm. where you say, stop thinking like a modern pot or a modern pot will put this into a, you know, perfectly modern kiln, which has yeah. got all the right environment and it just works it and you get mm. much higher success rate. But with ours around a campfire, you know, you expect a lower success rate. And this is where I think that lower success rate is because maybe the skills of mm. what you need to work in these conditions are slightly different to the skills mm. of a very skilled potter today. And actually by doing what you've done, which is taking that time to trial it, to use the materials, to understand the materials, um, what you've shown is that actually, again, this prehistoric isn't primitive. There's, there's a level mm. of skill and understanding here. It's just a different level of skill and understanding. Um, so it's quite incredible. I mean, I will say this is that the the, the pottery, um, I, it's one of the things we've always thought is that the clay in Loch Tay is no good. Um, and I don't know what your thought is about that, Jason. The, the clay in the Loch Tay area, and I'm only, you know, I've worked from about 300 metres away from the Cranach and then worked close towards the Cranach. The clay is, I would say, easier to work with than modern day clay like buff clay, for example, mm. that we use here, because it doesn't crack. You dry it within an hour. Listen. Yeah. So it's it's ceramic. Yeah. And we fired it. Yeah. And I think I was overthinking it. Yeah. So it's, I need to get this. It needs to look like that. And I was thinking, it needs to look like buff clay. It needs to look like crank clay. It doesn't. It just needs to look like what it looks like. Mm -hmm. And just shape it and not worry about it. I put maybe 15% quartz temper into it, mm -hmm. which binded it together a bit. There's a bit of horse manure in it. Mm -hmm. I was over-obsessing about the details. Mm -hmm. Just put it together, make a part, dry it out, fire it. And we did it in four hours, and that was with Neil Burridge. And we were really surprised that none of our crucibles, none of our tiers that we made, cracked at all in any way and survived. You could almost be brutal with it. You could just have thrown it straight in the furnace and it would be fine. Yeah. But what we're seeing with, with the reconstruction, I don't like that word, but you know what I mean, you can see the red in yeah. the pot. So that is the amount of iron that's in the clay, which is unsurprising because it's yeah. under a layer of iron. Um, it is, you can see the quartz inclusions in there. You can also see shards of mica. Yeah. And that's what we see across all of the pottery in our collection. You've yeah. got these mica shards. So yeah. is that is that those mica shards? Have you you didn't put them directly no. into the clay? 
No. So as an archaeologist, if, if we were looking at pottery and as part of the pottery project, which this hopefully will help inform a little bit with the experimental work you're doing, actually the we talk about and we use the phrase as archaeologist inclusions. Yeah. And that puts the human element of yeah. us putting that into the clay. Yeah. Whereas actually with the work you've done, by undoing that, you, you, you are arguing the point or you're making the point thereof that the clay already had the mica in it because of the geology, yeah. not because of the human action. No. I mean, if we, if, we, if we link, because these things don't exist in isolation, do they? No. Um, so if we look at our quernstone, for example, mm-hmm. it is mica schist. Mm-hmm. And people took advantage of that because it's a soft stone and it has garnets in it, so it wears away and splits the, it splits the grain. So you can see, you just have, if you go outside and you walk through Fern and you look at the geology, you can see the mica in the rock. You can yeah. just see it there, it glints. Yeah. And I think one of the mistakes that I made when I was processing the clay, I spoke to a modern potter, and they said, you need to remove all the impurities. So I was trying to put it through a very fine sieve. Yeah. And I was removing all the organic material. The mica was sitting in the sieve. And actually, that was the mistake I made. Don't remove that, use it. You need the organic material. You need the long strands of grass because it's going to hold it together. And that's the thing that stopped it shattering. So actually, we're, we're, we're almost doing what we're doing, but over-engineering a process. Yeah. yeah. And, and by reflecting on what you've got, raw material-wise, and a bit of understanding, it's a lot simpler. Interesting, you, you, you've, you've looked into the ceramic based off of a stepping in point towards metalworking. Mm. Um, and I think that's, that's something, for me, that's quite interesting, is that we, we again, like to divide into very yeah. specialist crafts. Um, a crucible is the absolute fundamental yeah. base need of a bronze worker. Yeah. There's a lot of ceramic knowledge going there. Yeah. But we're assuming that maybe a ceramicist might have made the crucible where actually I think we can make a, a jump in a way that the bronze worker mm. would have made the crucible. You know, you have to know how to make your tools to do yeah. your job. So actually, is the question I'm going to ask and think about is is is, is pottery that stepping off point towards metalworking? It's a stepping off point towards everything. Okay. So if you're doing iron smelting, what do you have to be good at? Pottery. Yeah. If you are cooking food, what do you have to know how to do? Pottery. Mm-hmm. If you are making, um, if you are smelting copper, what do you need to be good at? Pottery. Um, you know anything I can think of. From, and we're talking about domestic life in the Iron Age. First thing you need to be able to do is to make your pottery. But then you have to think, well, where are you getting the clay from? Because when you there's some anomalies here. Yeah. So if we look at our crucible, we can see the yellow iron oxide in the clay. Yeah. So that lines up with what we've got. Yeah. If we look at a shard of our uh, cooking pottery, it is white. Okay. It's very, very weird. It's low-fired. It's crumbly. Mm-hmm. How are they using low-fired pots to cook with? And it's white. So that tells us that this might be... The, the crucible that I have made has come from maybe the same area. Yeah. But if you move down to the shore, you've got a different kind of clay which will fire white. So not only would they need to be good at pottery, they would need to know where the different kind of clays for the things they wanted to do and maybe different kinds of pots flow at different kinds of temperatures so it's not only knowing how to shape this it's actually knowing 
when you dig down into the ground. So not only were the people walking across the land and they could, you know, they knew that they were using different plants for medicine, dyes, whatever. They also had a knowledge of what happened underneath the ground and how that changes just by walking five metres. Yeah. It's, it's completely different. And the clay changes within five metres. Blue clay, which isn't very good, but you can still shape it. And this very, very bright yellow clay, not far away, completely brilliant. So it's, it's the awareness of what's going on underneath the ground as well. Yeah. There's, a, there's a definitely a level of geology yeah. that, that these people, again, aren't, <laughs> we can't say they, they understood it, but they were aware of it. Yeah. And they knew what was there and they were, they were exploiting it's a big word because exploiting comes with all the baggage of that, but they were, they were actively using it. Um, that's, that's, again, again, that's what the archaeology is yeah. pointing us towards. Um, so the crucible fragment itself, um, it is only the base. Uh, we don't have the rest of it. Um, with your reconstruction, you've you've gone clearly about what three four centimeters high yeah. with the walls. Now because we only have the base, um, yeah. why why would you go only three four centimeters high? What's what's your your thought behind that? And I'll I'll make sure we put an image up of this on the top of the podcast so right, people okay. can see it. Why only four centimeters? Because if you if you think about crucibles like a half tennis ball or something like that, uh-huh. I don't think that there is. Um, I'm not sure of the height of that, so I didn't want to assume it. So that I could have made that quite tall. Mm. I could have made it really tall, which is going to change the nature of the pottery. We've got no idea how tall that is. Mm-hmm. So it could just be a little taller and just be like the one I've got, or it could be something that's quite big. Mm-hmm. So we've got absolutely no idea. So I didn't want to make an assumption about the size. So I took that and I thought, well, the crucible we use are kind of half a tennis ball. So what would happen if we just rounded that up and then um, yeah. smoothed off the top? Yeah. Again, it's working with uncertainty. We don't know. So, you know, at some point, you know, we may get someone in who is um, an authority on Iron Age crucibles who would really inform what it might have looked like. And then we would then make another reconstruction of it informed by, by that expertise. So we don't know. So maybe this, is a, this is a starting point. But what it does tell us is... It, it works, and the clay from the local area works. And not only that, I think I think with what you were you were making with the other crucibles that weren't from the clay and that that style and that shape, it was holding enough metal to cast a singular pin yeah. out of bronze. And the only metalworking evidence we have at the Cranog in terms of bronze and what bronze was being mm. made, potentially made at the Cranog, we don't know if it was made, but it is the only bronze artifact that was found, is our swan net pin. And in terms of the mass of bronze that you're working, it's a very similar amount to that. So practically, I think when I was looking at you using it, there was a very ergonomic size to what mm. we were doing. We don't know, but what well, we do know is we know what could have been casted. So the, yeah. the crucible fits to, to that, if that yeah. makes sense. And that's what we did. We kind of looked at the swanning pen and we estimated it. So again, you know, I'm not taking the credit for this. I was working with John Strachan, um, who is uh, an archaeologist, um, University of Edinburgh is working with us, and also Neil Burridge, who is a, a kind of you know is a renowned expert on Bronze Age swords. So it was a kind of it wasn't just me making that decision. Yeah. It was a group of us going, well, what what will we try? And then you know Neil said, well, if we're going to make a sonic pin, this might be the size you use. So it's, it's just basing it off that you know, and we made a um, we made the Orkney uh, ring pin from it, mm-hmm. and there was more than enough. We could have you know with this size. 
we could have made four ring pins from it. Okay. We don't know what was made. Yeah. One of the weird things, not, no, that's a bit of a thing. Um, <laughs> one of the interesting things about the crucible is the thickness of it. Why does it need to be that thick? Mm -hmm. You could have quite a thin crucible. Is it because of the um, quality of the clay? Yeah. Is it that they need to uh, um, put more, um, what the uh, inclusions they put into the clay? Why did it need to be that thick? Because I've worked with that clay, or it, it looks very much like it. And if I'd worked it that thick, it would have crumbled. How did they dry that? There's all these kind of anomalies, and I think there's really space for a lot more experimental archaeology. Um, but to me, you know, it just looks like a, a kind of broken, you know, an eggshell, and yet it's got so much data in it. The, further, the more you look at it, the more uncertain you become about what it actually could do. And interestingly enough, I'd, I'd like to see your crucible after you've done four, five, six bronze yeah. casts in it and start to see if you're getting the same colouring and same impact yeah. and that, that would help us again. It wouldn't answer it directly, but it would help us to inform what it might have been used for um, and just how many how many it would last. I mean, we need to, you know, obviously, more rigorous, we can make another one, but yeah. there's still plenty of clay up at Oak Bank that we can be making these out of. Um, brilliant. And it has to be repeatable, you know, just because I've made one. You know, one of the things about experimental archaeology is that you should use the resources that were available to the people of the past. That's one of the things. Um, and, of course, you can not make leaps of faith, but you can try and fill in the gaps. But they, it has to be repeatable. This yeah. might be a complete fluke. Yeah. I could make another one and it might not work or it might fall to bits or it might have a completely different quality. So th this is repeatable. So it'd be interesting... Can we actually bronze cast from this? If I just move two metres to the right in this hole in the ground where we got the clay from, is it going to work? Can we narrow it down by just moving five feet to the right, five feet to the right, five feet to the right, gathering the clay? So I think there's a lot more to be done on this. Um, but it, it, does show, well, you know, it does show that people can make uh, ceramics from um, clay near right bank chronic. So I think the idea that you can't, I think, is rubbish. I think there was clay at the bottom of the lock because the, the piles were screwed into it. Yeah. It would be interesting to access that and try and make ceramics from that, try and make a crucible. I could have just struck lucky. Could it could have. just be beginner's luck. But then again, two and a half belts and years ago, if I made that crucible, could have just struck lucky. Well, yeah. Or it, could, it might have been really awful and they just binned it, which is why it's all cracked. <laughs> Who knows? It's that it's uncertainty. We can't just assume that because it's there, it's a perfect crucible that worked. It's nope. a cracked crucible yep. with a load of uncertain layers that we're trying to work through. But only by you doing this and, and yeah. starting to ask those questions yeah. and using... I think the big thing that you've done, which I think is, for me, to help understand and tell the story of the people here better, is you've clearly used the materials that were at the fingertips of the people two and a half thousand years yeah. ago. There's no imported clay there's no shop bought clay there's no shop bought schist there's no you know we're not there's no veneer of the iron age with this no this is right the way through the sort of kit they would have been used and i think that's that's actually helping us to tell that story and inform inform us better as well i think i think just to another another thing you know when we, we do this and we do a public experimental archaeology so we do it in front of people so we can succeed and we can fail you know, I've got used to kind of failing and then failing a little bit better. 
and they're failing a little bit better, but we, we get close to it. But what was really great is as people were coming around and we were working with Neil and John Strachan and we were doing the, we were doing the bronze cast, is we got the clay there, we've got it mixed with the, with the quartz temple, with the inclusions, and people are able to handle the clay and they're able to rub it through their fingers and make ribbons. And that seemed to have the same effect as when people come into the museum and they see the swan neck pin or they see the textile, that sense of like, oh my God, I'm connecting to the past. But they got this of clay that I just got two weeks ago. There was this sensory connection between yeah. them and what was happening. in the. I mean, they could have just gone and got it themselves, but it's like... Yeah. This lines up with a chronic, oh my God, this is incredible. So I think from a storytelling element, I think that's really important. Yeah, but it's the same, the geology doesn't change. I always say that the, the, the landscape is, if you're looking at it as a picture, the lines are the same, but the colouring in is slightly different. Mm. You know, it's still the same. The land, the mountains, the hills, the skyline, mm. and what's under the ground doesn't really change. Yeah. But it's the stuff that we see on top of it that does. So actually taking that stuff, the same material, you are right, it is it's connecting people back people yeah it's that you know the more we do experimental archaeology you know we were talking about pottery you need to be able to do pottery to cook pottery to make metal pottery to smell iron bronze cast textiles or whatever and i think you know just a fragment of pottery that piece of clay just shows us the entanglement of people places and things both in the past and how that connects us to the storytelling in the present just a piece of clay in your hand Wonderful. Well, thank you, Jason. I'm sure that's people are sick and tired about 20 minutes of yeah, probably. On. But you know, I think it's 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 a powerful thing for us to do as an organisation to actually just sit and yeah ask these questions and talk yeah. about it out loud because yeah. we run 100 miles an hour, so sometimes we don't get there. Yeah. Thank you very much, Jason. Thank you very much, Rich. So I am sat here with Neil Burridge, who is one of my most favouritest of people. Uh, he's, uh, well, Neil, introduce yourself. Um, I suppose I'm your favourite bronze swordsmith. Been around and still end up here. Yeah. And we've got John Strachan here. Hiya. John, what do you do? Um, I'm working in the museum at the moment, um, just for the summer, but I'm also a student of archaeology at Edinburgh University. So. Fantastic. And we're just... Capturing what's been happening at our Celtic Coming event, uh, which has been a four-day event, and uh, you are the Bronze Smith Master, and mm. John, you've been learning. Um, yeah. If you just want to tell us what you've been doing uh, the past couple of days. Right, we've been trying to put together the process of uh, Iron Age pin making. So we've had to go right back to scratch and start making everything from the ground up, rather than turn up with modern equipment so we've had to make the air tubes yep um crucibles yep. the furnace and uh learn how to use it so it's been very intense very busy two days brilliant um so with your bronze casting you've been you've had it you've had an aim in mind at the end of it what was that aim? um i think just trying to bring a bit of iron age bronze alive because yeah. it's connected with your collection yeah, so in our collection we've, we've, we've got brilliant, the, the Cranog evidence as it is for metalworking is fantastic. Mm. We've, got, we've got finished product in the form of a, of a gorgeous swan neck pin. Mm. But more important than that, we do have evidence from Cranogs in Scotland of crucibles themselves. Mm. So what that is, is it's, it's great to see not just the finished product 
but the production and when you find yeah. the crucibles that's that's showing us it was happening we think anyway within the near vicinity yeah, yeah. but you find the um that the technology is far more sophisticated than people think they're just making the crucibles there's an art to it you can't just take a bag of clay and make a pinch pot and call it a crucible. You have to what's start. The what's the art, Neil? The art is to get enough fabric to make the clay flexible at heat. Yeah. So it doesn't just sort of drown under the heat and crack. So ordinary packet clay just won't work. No. So you've got to mix it. You've got to cut it. You've mm. got to change it with stuff. Yeah. It's um, magic, really. Yeah, it's magic, and it's, it's a technology they're already aware of. Because yeah. they knew when they were making pots, they couldn't just take the clay out of the ground. They had to add temper to it to make it become a pot. So they get the same with the, the crucibles and the air tube, the toya, yeah. and same again. They've got to uh, figure out the right mix of clay and sand, charcoal and animal dung to, to get what they need. Brilliant. And you've made in, I believe, yesterday in, in about... Four hours? Yeah. You took a crucible from raw material to finished product. Yeah, we made a whole pile of crucibles. Yeah. And then we um, dried them out with a log fire. Yep. And then fired them in the evening. Yeah. I mean, fired them in the afternoon. And, and just for good measure, we set about and cast some bronze. Straight in them. Straight in, which was quite, a, quite an achievement to go from sort of basically wet clay to 1,200 degrees in four hours. And... Really, when you've done that, you've done that with just no different material to what was available back then. Yes, we, we used sand off the beach, we yep. used dung from nearest stables. Yep. Um, clay we, I brought in, but I needed yep. this, a clay that would do the yep. task. And yeah, we ground up the charcoal, mixed it all together, and it was all, apart from the clay, because yep. your local clay is an unknown quantity yep. to me. Yeah, yeah. So I had to make sure I had a clay that would work. I suppose that, that then becomes the next step, doesn't it? Yes. Yeah. yeah. We did have one. We've got, we haven't fired it yet, but we've got stuff from Oakbank Clay, which is the clay from near where the crown was found. And we haven't fired that yet, but yeah. it seems to... You had a look at it, Neil, didn't you? And um, you had a feel of that one, the one Jason made. Yeah. What um, did you think of it? I think it would probably be fine. Yeah. Because it's the special one, I didn't want to risk it. <laughs> so I, I took it, because it's the only, uh, he's got two bags of clay yeah. and he made it, yeah. but I didn't want to rush with it. Yeah. Because it, if it breaks, um, it, it wouldn't be a sort of good use of the clay. Yeah. So I've, I've just said, just go at a slower speed with that one. I like it. It's almost like you're teasing an episode too, John. Almost. Almost. It's almost, almost like I know what I'm doing here. Yeah, almost. Yeah. Wonderful. Um, brilliant. So you've you've done your bronze casting. What what, what was what was it you were making? Um, um, we were day? actually making um, hold it up to the camera. Um, this, which is ring-headed pin, Iron Age ring-headed pin. Gorgeous. This particular one is copied from a mould in Orkney, but it was it's just one that lend itself to the casting we're doing. And it's different from the pin you've got in your collection, yes. which is basically folded in bent wire. Right, fantastic. So, so it's different. So they wouldn't have cast the shape. Yep. They would have cast the wire, hammered it out, and then did all the curving and shaping to so, get what they want. So that, you've got your, you've got your pouring cups on a 
your metal's yeah. come in, it's filled the space that you've created, uh, and then this you chop off, yeah. and you've already polished it and made it gorgeous and finished yeah. it off, and that, that's the finished product then. What we've got with our pin is they would have cast maybe something bit similar, longer, longer yeah, shape. Longer. And uh, then got the hammer out and forged it down to get the dimensions they wanted. It's about two and a half millimetres. Yeah. And then drawn it out so it's an even thickness apart from the point. Yeah. And then they've carefully curved it round into the shape. So it's two different processes. Yeah. So initially it was cast and then yeah. it's hammered and then curved with a pair of tongs or something. Was this one's completely cast? Would that have been when you when you curve it into the shape? Would you have to have heated the metal? No, but most bronze you work cold. You work cold. Yeah. Why is that? Um, they become brittle as they get hot. Okay. So most bronzes, not all bronzes, yeah. but these bronzes that are relevant to this pin, yeah. would be um, brittle when hot. Yeah. yeah. So. So, basically, what you're saying is, is that there's a there's a level of skill there that not a lot of people know nowadays no it's a very difficult level of skill and yeah i mean it's difficult to really imagine they've got to know all of these things aside from the metal obviously and how to work it they've got to know all about the ceramics that they're going to be using they have to be able yeah. to get all of the charcoal and have that produced yep um and then also um going through the whole process they've got to have people they can work with because you you know, you can't do everything all at once. No. So you've got to have people you'd be training up at the same time. So it's a massive um, you know, level of te technological skill, but also there's a lot of social interaction going on at the same time. A, so what you're saying, John, is, is from, from your experience the past couple of days, there's almost like an organisational yeah. need for bronze. It's not so it just crop out of mm. nowhere. No, exactly. Which begs the question, Neil, and I'll ask you this question, and we don't know the answer because our Cranog is prehistoric, there's no written evidence, um, but how would you perceive uh, a Bronze Age, Bronze Age is the wrong word, an Iron Age bronze working setup at the Cranog Centre? What, what would the bronze worker be like? How would you, from your understanding, how would they set up? How would they, you know? How... Um, I think most of it would be on a small scale. Yeah. Because all the items in this area are all on a small scale. So the size of the furnace we're using today, which is about a foot long, about nine inches wide. Yep. Um, crucibles have to be sort of two and a half inches, three inches across. Would work fine. So the crucibles you've got in your collection yep. match the metal work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it would work. But it is the, it's piecing it all together. So they were good at making the crucibles and the moulds, and they had the whole lot brought together. It's like moving goalposts. Yep. So they have to get the goalposts all in the right place. And the way I look at it is, is a, sk a very skilled team of craftsmen. Yeah. I don't think it was just one man no. or one person doing this. It's probably a group of people. They go, right, we're doing pins today. You're doing the moulds, you make the crucibles, you get the charcoal. I'll um, trade for the bronze. Yeah, and I suppose would there would there be any um, degree of, of what they might call an itinerant setup, or would you? No, I'm not no. believing. It, it's very good. I love the itinerant <laughs> bronze smith. The fantasy is really good. But I think realistically, it's all it's all in house. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, once you get to weapon making, that's state sanctioned. 
people aren't making swords for the love of it. Yeah. They're making stuff like that because they're state sanctioned. But on a craft level, yeah. it's more likely, it's, if it's not made here, it's traded. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. You, you wouldn't have a guy wandering around with a pair of bellows. <laughs> it sounds romantic, <laughs> but I can't buy it. Always a romantic, there you go. Uh, brilliant. Um, so yeah, just to carry on from that then, in terms of, of Loch Tay specifically, and Oakbank Cranog, um, we, I think the thing we haven't really touched on is, is you know, the material itself. Um, the other metal we have clear evidence of is iron, and we have bog iron, and we have the skills and, and everything. It's 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 in the hills all around us. What we don't have here in Lotte is yeah. tin, definitely. But the other thing we we might not have is copper. Um, although it's probably traded. You expect it all to be traded. Yeah, because it's prolifically available. Um, so it would have been traded. Raw materials or as bronze, how do you think? It could have been broken bronze or it could have been just ingots. It's hard to tell. There's so much. By the, by the time you get to the early, early Iron Age, there was a glut of bronze on the market. Was, yeah. it, there's probably a lot and they probably find a few fragments of sword turn up in the wash. They just chucked it in. No, they just they traded them. Yeah. So the swords were broken up, late Bronze Age stuff broken up, and they yeah. would have traded it for for other things. And yeah, that's same as your beautiful glass bead you've got here. Yeah, um, yeah. So it's it kind of in, in a similar way. I would I would compare that to kind of almost what they were doing with, with in Scotland, especially they call it hack silver. You know, they're mm. just taking what there's no silver in this country, but yeah. the stuff's brought in. And once it's made, <clears> they reuse it. And, same thing with yeah. bronze, once it's made, and we use it, and that's... Yeah, yeah, it's infinitely. They might have gone and dug somebody's treasures out, melted down beautiful artefacts yeah. to make the bronze fin. There we go. <laughs> hey, that's a better story in my mind. I think that's a much better story. Brilliant. Um, so for your past two days, what, what, John, from your time, is there anything you would, you would want to add about your experience of bronze working? Um, not really. I mean, just... Working with Neil, it's been really good fun, obviously. It's been a tidal wave, though. Yeah, it's been quite intense, but in a very good way. You're very good at sort of directing people in a non-authoritarian sort of, Mm. um, just, you know, could you please do that sort of thing. Yeah. And it's very easy to get along with you, even when I can tell you're a bit grumpy with me when I'm Well, uh, I think that's just I'm just grumpy old Hector. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's been great, and um, it's been really nice to sort of just see... Uh, the basic processes of how you actually form these items um, it gives it a lot more i guess when you, especially the things like metal when they're finished items it's really difficult to visualize the human process behind that so it's been yeah. really nice to get a more human touch on these somewhat cold metallic items i guess brilliant anything to add neil um yeah we still just made the first moves got more to go yeah wonderful so we should um yeah be able to take this Further and further forward. Yeah, and I mean, when we move to the Lurb, it's it's we are an Iron Age museum, but you know, people don't wake up on the first of January, eight hundred BC in Scotland and go right Iron Age <laughs> now. Get rid of the bronze. It doesn't yeah, happen like that. Craftsmen are always there. Yeah. It's present and it's constant. Yeah. So there'll yeah. be more and more and more with Neil Burridge, hopefully. I think so. Right. Thank you, old man. Brilliant. Cheers. Well done, John. Top job.
Hi guys, um, I'm Chantelle and I'll be taking over this podcast segment as Richard is away on his honeymoon. I'm the marketing officer here at the Crown Centre and I also produce the podcast. Um, I'm sat here with Amy. Um, Amy, why don't you tell us a bit about yourself? Oh, thank you Chantelle. Um, so I've been working at the Crown since February. I do a lot of tours but I've also been helping Ran out a lot with the curatorial side of things because I recently just finished my Masters in Museum and Artifact Studies. Oh, very nice. Thank you. Very nice. Um, yeah, so I wanted to talk about the swan neck pin today. Because um, we just had a podcast recently with Neil Burridge and John Strachan. Mm-hmm. And they talked about making replica pins. So I thought I'd fill you in on a bit of the history of the pin itself. So our swan neck pin, when you look at it, you can tell why it's called a swan neck pin. It is meant to resemble a swan neck it's a crook-headed swan neck pin, so the top part resembles a shepherd's crook, and then the bottom curve is to re- represent the swan neck. It's a really exciting piece for us, I really enjoyed working on it. It's our only diagnostic artefact, so all this means is it can help us date the site. So, things nowadays they go in and out of fashion, did in the Iron Age as well. So this is a very early Iron Age design. So. They wore it and then replaced it with the next best thing, I guess. So when we found out we knew this Cranog site was probably looking around 500 BC. And when the radiocarbon dates came back, all matched up, which was nice for us. So yeah, we know it's a copper alloy, unsure of particular kind it is, and potentially bronze, but again, more tests need to be carried out on this to discover. Um, and Neil Burridge came in very kindly and offered to help me make a replica one which was really exciting as well. So I did a few measurements, I measured the width of the straight part of the pin and this was to kind of find out whether it had been hammered or cast. So if it was cast all the measurements should be perfectly in line but this didn't happen so we were assuming it's been hammered instead. So Neil, um, he cast some wire and then we had to go hammering it into shape and we did eventually manage to get a pin that was the almost exactly the same size as the one we have in the museum which is really exciting as well and um, so then with this we can you know get volunteers staff to wear it it's usually used to hold a shawl or a cloak together um, and then once they've worn it for a while we can start looking at the wear on the replica pins seeing if it matches up with the wear on the pin we have in the museum as well so it's all a very exciting project um, I did a talk with Tayside Museums Forum recently and they have an event called Tayside Treasures that they run so I talked a lot about this and um, I just kind of carried on from there and got really excited about the pen itself so I started doing a lot more research into it and this has kind of led into kind of the basis of what we're hoping might eventually turn into a metalworking project which would be really exciting as well. I know Rich has also talked a little bit about crucibles with Jason on the podcast. So this can also be part of um, the metalworking kit. So all in all, very exciting object that we have. So you mentioned that the swan neck pin um, is used to, to maybe hold your cloak together and stuff. Um, yeah. But the swan neck pin, if you've ever seen it, if you've ever been on site, is actually quite, it's quite a beautiful piece. Um, that, like Amy said, it does look like a swan neck. Yeah. It's named after it after the swan neck for a reason um so in the iron age is aesthetics and beauty something they would have 
considered in making their items or were they more practica practicality oh, yeah. kind of base? We think definitely they like they cared a lot about what they were wearing, what they looked like. Um, I mean, if you look in the metalworking case itself, we've got necklaces, rings, um, all those beautiful little beads we have as well. Um, in the textile shelter, um, we talk a lot about the different dyes they're wearing, all the nice bright colours. And again, with a pin, like you said, it is just a really functional piece. You just need it to hold your shawl, cloak, whatever you're wearing together. It doesn't need to look nice, it just needs to work. So the fact that they spent this amount of time trying to make it look really beautiful is just really... It's a really nice touch, it's really amazing. And if you look at other pins from the Iron Age, they're all kind of the same really intricate, nice designs. Um, and the fact that there are so many different designs also suggests that, you know, there's a differing taste there. Like I said, things go kind of in and out of fashion. So it's really nice to think that they are caring a lot more about their appearance. What else can be done test-wise with this one neck pin? Is there anything else? Yeah, I mean, there's quite a few things we can do. For example, um, if we did want to find out what kind of copper alloy it is, exactly that could be tested for. It would be nice to figure that out because if it is bronze, bronze is an alloy, so you need copper and tin for that. Um, there is a copper mine down the road from us, Tom Nadashan Copper Mine. There is not a whole lot of evidence to suggest it was used in the Iron Age, but there is potential there to figure out if it might have been around, um, if there was any copper in the area that would have been used to make the pin or whether this was traded for and that again opens a lot of avenues for us so if it does come back that the copper was found in this area that'd be really interesting to know that they were getting their own copper I guess but if it's not then again that still could be interesting for us to see the trade networks going on so they are definitely trading for different things all coming in there so that would be exciting too amazing and um in terms of metal work at the delib like is there any more i know you mentioned the metal link metal work project um but do you have any anticipations or expectations for for what's next yeah i mean hopefully if this all gets up and running it'd be really interesting and it'd be really great to get people like Neil back in to do more pin casting and things like that. I mean, I mentioned that ours is probably hammered out, but you can cast different pins. Neil, for example, at Kelts Are Coming, um, he cast a ring-headed pin based on one from Orkney, I believe it was. So it'd be a nice experiment around with them, get different craftspeople in. It could become a more common occurrence for us to do metalworking, which might be really fun as well, especially since we do have a really great collection of metal objects in the museum Ooh, that sounds amazing that sounds yeah. fab fingers crossed it all goes ahead yeah looking forward to it <laughs> <laughs> is there anything else you want to add um no just keep um, an eye out see what we're come up with with metalworking amazing well thank you amy thank amy you. is one of our very fabulous members of staff here um she's also helping to take over the pottery project so she'll be on a few more podcasts with the pottery project gang so make sure to keep your eye out for that one. But thank you guys. Mm -hmm.